I'm originally a physicist by training, but I was always brought up to see all knowledge production and all these activities of intellect and thinking about things and figuring out how something works as basically manifestations of the same human interest. This is your host, Tom Sumner. This week on the Common Errors in English Usage podcast, we're joined as usual by Paul Bryans, author of Common Errors in English Usage website and book, and also a guest a very interesting conversation with a very interesting scientist and amateur linguist, Chris Weigel. We're here with Chris Weigel, who is joining us from Alaska today. Yes, good morning. Chris is the editor and founder of the Acorn Database. And Chris, we talked to uh, Jeff Pullum, who coined the phrase Acorn. We talked to him a couple of weeks ago. It was a really good show, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you, yeah. Excellent. Now, he coined it, but you perfected it, didn't you? I think if anybody perfected it um, after Jeff, it would be Mark Lieberman and Arnold Zwicky, who spent many months after this first post, I think in 2003, was it? Or two? I think three. Collecting acorns, and there are wonderful posts up still on Language Log about that. Uh, no, what I did is just to think that all these posts, they were all over the place and different blogs, not all on Language Log. I had, at the time, I was living in France and I had my own little language blog. And people in all the blogosphere, the lingua blogosphere, were collecting acorns. And I thought, there needs to be a collection somewhere. And it happened that I was just teaching myself web development. And I uh, had set up several blogs and knew how to modify blogging software to do slightly different things. So I set this up and um, we had from the beginning quite a few people who entered Acorns, but it was not that easy because you had to have some sort of editorial line and I had no experience with that. So for a while there was a frantic activity to get most of the Acorns in and well, that went on for a while. Now we have still about 450 acorns in the database, but there is a long backlog of acorns in forums and other places. Yeah. This is Paul Bryant. Um, maybe you could uh, just redefine acorn from your understanding for somebody that might not have heard earlier. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I think, did, uh, of course, the authoritative job here. An acorn is a misspelling that is born out of um, a reshaping of the meaning of a word. There is a misunderstanding at the base of an acorn, um, a grain of well, maybe ignorance that you you have a word that the spelling of which you are not completely sure of. And you think, well, it has to be spelled in a particular way because of the constituent parts having a particular meaning. And the example acorn is from someone who wanted to spell the word acorn, didn't apparently know the spelling and thought, well, it's something like a kernel of corn and it's egg-shaped and it's probably spelled E-G-G-C-O-R-N. And there are many of those and they have sort of a floating neighborhood to folk etymologies because a folk etymology would basically be an acorn that becomes established and rooted. And um, the other linguistic phenomena it's often associated with is a malapropism whereby you use the wrong word. For example, I think the canonical example is the allegory on the banks of the Nile instead of the alligator on the banks of the Nile. You think that you're actually saying that this animal is called an allegory. I actually had some examples that I classified as not acorn. For example, the word equilaterally seems to be used to mean something like equitably or to be used to mean um, unequivocably, and I found a lot of examples where equilaterally is used very oddly. That would be not an acorn, that would be a malapropism. 
And um, put in a footnote here, the name comes from Mrs. Malaprop. Oh, yeah, of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> from uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan's 1775 play, The Rivals. And I assume Malaprop just means not appropriate or not proper. I think there is a French term, right? Malapropos. Um, yes. Oh, inappropriate yes, yes. or in, not fitting or in the yeah, wrong inappropriate. place. Right. Yeah. Not inappropriate in a moral sense, but inappropriate right. as like wrong, like square peg in round hole. You know, I told you I had a French English bilingual blog at the time. So I started to collect acorns a little bit in French. And I remember now that I, I mean, come up with a name for it in French. Um, so I call them potu rose, which is basically a pun. Um, potu rose as in pot o rose at pot with roses in it is sort of um, part of an idiom in French, which means to find the pot with the roses in it, meaning to find the beautiful thing that you're looking for. And if you misspell it as poteau, rose means um, a pink colored, like a traffic pole sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, pillar, so yeah. we call it poteau rose. And I had a French, few French friends who also said, oh, is this a poteau rose? Of course, your first language is German. Yes, yeah. And I've assumed that there are fewer uh, acorns in German because the etymology is usually so transparent. When you see a word like Hanshu, you can figure out that that must mean glove, even if you don't know the language. Yeah, that is, in a way, it's true. We had a lot fewer in German, or only the occasional one. Handschu, of course, is a compound noun from hand, which is hand, same word, and shoe, which is shoe, also almost the same word in, as in English. And as a compound, it means a glove, right? Because it's like a shoe for your hand, you, or more like a, a sock for your hand, but, well, <laughs> handschu. Um, but, you know, there is folk etymology in German, and I guess that most folk etymology is basically born out of acorns because someone had to start misunderstanding or reshaping or reformulating things. And there has been a um, spelling reform in Germany that started, I think it was in 1995 that they did the propositions and then it was adopted and became um, the standard spelling in 2002, I believe. I was already not living in the country anymore and I left Germany in 1995. So it was just around that time. And I looked it up and there were a few of those spellings that before the spelling reform would have to be qualified as acorns are now correct spelling with a folk etymology in them. Ah, uh, and that is actually kind of funny, I think. Um, one example is the word Quentchen in German. The Chen just is a diminutive, means little. And Quentchen is spelled Q-U-E-N-T and then the, the ending, the, the suffix Chen. And, well, it was spelled like this and it means a little quantity, a little bit, but it does not come from quantity. So people thought, however, it comes from quantum, which means quantity in German. And so they spelt it with Q-U-A umlaut, U, because they thought it comes from quantum, but it comes from a Germanic word called quent, which is related to quint, like fifth, like a small part. Nothing to do with quantum. And, And there are a few of those, especially to do with spelling something with an E or with an A umlaut, which sound almost the same. There are many uh, French loan words in German. Do people tend to misspell those more? Oh, yeah, and um, especially like portemonnaie, etc. Um, yeah, uh, there were a few spellings that have been Germanified with the last spelling reform because, you know, how many N's and M's and, and E's and A's are in portemonnaie if you really spell it like in French. Yes. It's not so easy. Chris, I want to talk to you about your um, 
your background and how you latched on to this, you know, as you, kind of your meaning in life, right? To create the Acorn database, <laughs> you found oh, your true purpose. <laughs> You're a geophysicist. Yes, I'm now. Um, yes, I have a few careers, I think. I'm originally a physicist by training, but I was always brought up to see all knowledge production and all these activities of intellect and thinking about things and figuring out how something works as basically manifestations of the same human interest. And uh, whether it's in linguistics or whether it's in literature and history or in science doesn't really make that much different to what I think about, you know, they all should be done. And I never wanted to completely leave the more humanities and language oriented side behind when I went into science and computing and then computer programming for a while. And, and now I went to Alaska and got back into science after a while in, in working for a software company. And uh, there's a lot of good geoscience in Alaska. So my science and physics interest got turned into geophysics here because we have volcanoes and we have wildfires and we have climate change and we have ice caps and glaciers. So there's a lot of things going on here in, in the geosciences. Um, and so I, I lived in France and I had to learn French and I had to also keep my English up and even get it up to standard. So I was deeply into that while studying more and working in science. And uh, yeah, I guess trying to make good tools for the real linguists, you know, the people like the language log friends of mine um, and keeping in touch. And I mean, I've always, your side, Paul, was, was always like one of the major references because it had these clear explanations, examples, um, not, you know, very, very, very useful for that. So I always oh, wanted to you. sort of have my little part in that, you know, that was basically the idea here. Um, while you're um, just touching on the subject of uh, geological things, what do you think of the journalistic use of the word epicenter? Uh, yeah, that and quantum leap. I do have a few pet peeves, you know, <laughs> even though the Acorn database takes this really radical, non-judgmental point of view. And I personally, um, I would not tell someone or I don't think it's right to regard someone lesser because they are ignorant about something in language. But yeah, I wish, well, the epicenter is maybe, you know, it, it's used as meaning the center, but in reality, it's supposed to mean um, the point on the surface of the earth that is right above the location of an earthquake. So it's not actually where the earthquake center is. It's projected on the sphere of the earth. And I think that's maybe too much subtlety. And uh, I guess, you know, it's a metaphoric use, so that's fine. I have more problems with the quantum leap because a quantum leap yes. is supposed to be like the smallest possible change you can make and not a huge world changing thing. This said, again, you know, a quantum discovery of quantum mechanics showed that these little step changes make big, have big effects. They can change the, the wavelength of some spectrum from one to something else. And yeah, I mean, I can see it, but it's not like a quantum leap in, you know, it, it's a very small change. Yeah, well, and I think <laughs> the most annoying thing about it is that the only thing that most people know about the quantum theory is something that's not true. Yeah, it's it's kind of not true and it's true. And I'm, I'm I'm telling you, it's a pet peeve and I'm sort of a little bit embarrassed that I have it. I think it's it's still my pet, you know. I'm not throwing any stones to someone who, who does this or feel the need to correct them. And I think if, you know, if they know that quantum mechanics proceeds by step changes, that's already something. It's not too bad, you know. It's, you know, we'll start somewhere. Um, yeah, but it's true that I don't do it. And if I had to write an article with someone, I would edit that out. 
Well, um, since you were saying nice things about my site, um, I enjoyed learning about the Acorn database years ago. Um, people began to send me there, say, you got to read this, and I had not seen it before. So I plunged into it, and I had trouble navigating it at first because it wasn't at all clear what the difference is between the forum where people propose egg corns, they get discussed and dismissed or delayed or whatever, and the egg corn database where the official entries wind up. And the discussions in both seem similar and sometimes so. Um, and the first few that I suggested got turned down because uh, oh, <laughs> the, the concept of egg corn was not something that in itself fascinated me. I was interested in all kinds of misuse and, and especially entertaining. And, and as you know, I, I try to use humor as much as possible. So I'm always looking for funny things. And egg corns are often hilarious. Um, but anyway, it, I found it very interesting, and I went through pretty systematically looking for ones that I thought were common enough to qualify because I do common errors in English usage. In my blog, I'll occasionally take on rare ones just for fun. But um, I'm not trying to track down every possible error. In fact, I would see the majority that people suggest to me, I say either this isn't an error or this is really rare. <laughs> Hardly anybody does this, but I do a lot of internet searching. But also, just on the Acorn database, people often discuss how many examples they found in the wild, as people like to say there. And that's been extremely helpful. Um, yeah, but the searching has also become harder, right? Right. Back when we started that, Google was a little bit less sophisticated, I guess. Um, and the results that Google came up with seemed to be more, you know, a little bit more objective. Now it's really, if I do a search from my office computer and from my home computer, I get different results. If I switch the language of my browser, I get different results. And, and even, I mean, while in English. And if, if the, if Google thinks I'm someone else, I get different results. I think that's a bit frustrating for, what they called Google social linguistics. Uh, but this said, I mean, we got a good start here. And um, what happened is actually, it's it's one of those histories of hobby projects. I started the database and I know that it needs a software overhaul quite urgently. And I just did not have the time to do this. At the same time, people got really very passionate about it and I could not really keep up with all of this. So I put the forum on. And some of the forum members are very formal and try to adopt the same structure that we set up for the entries, having, you know, chiefly in examples in the wild and some discussion a little bit informed with from linguistics as far as we can manage. Um, so some good stuff is in the forums that definitely should be in the database, but forums are also just a place to, to discuss something that, that's there. So I've been actually thinking of putting a call out to the nice forum members and saying, okay, there are so many here. Let's make a priority list. And if we cannot get everything in, at least we can maybe start trickling stuff back into the database again or up into the database, into the main part of it. Yeah. But the forums are, I mean, more like a place to hang out. Well, for listeners who maybe have never explored uh, the current database, maybe you could talk about a few of your favorite examples. Oh, um, well, I mean, there there are some that just kind of grab me. They, they just <laughs> speak to me. One I really like is a, is a rarer one that has only a few examples. It's to have euthanism with Y-O-U-T-H instead of euphemism. Because euphemism is really a complicated word if you don't know any Greek etymology. Um, 
And uh, if you just hear it, you might think it's something about if it happens to be from an example that happens to come out in in youth speak or in the speech of people younger than you, then you might think that it has something to do with youth instead of being this Greek thing to mean, you know, an ameliorated form, like uh, saying something that sounds better than it actually is or giving a good word for something horrible. Yeah, that that always makes me think of euthanasia. Where yeah. The spelling Y O U T H I N A S I A is probably not an error, but a pun most of the time. Yes, uh, yes, I think that is a literary thing where they talked about youth in Asia, uh, and I don't know where it was. I haven't figured out where it's from. But of course, the word properly spelled means uh, mercy killing, essentially. Yeah. It's an old-fashioned term, um, or as assisted dying, and there, there's all kinds of. Well, and it is a euphemism for worse things, of course. (laughs) Yes, yes, and discriminatory, yeah, right, killing of of minority groups and so on. But it made me think, when I was thinking about the word of the old uh, novel and movie, Logan's Run, in which um, there was a lot of concern about overpopulation at the time, and this was in the late 60s, I think early 70s, and um, this guy imagined a dystopia in which only young people are allowed to live, and I think when they get to age 21, um, they go through this ceremony where they put on these white gowns and they're levitated in this dome and everybody cheers, and it looks like they're going up to a higher level, which is sort of like entering heaven. Um, but actually behind the scenes, what happens is they're being incinerated yeah. uh, to keep the population down. So that's an example where euthanasia and getting rid of youth <laughs> turned out to be the same thing. Yeah, that's true. And indeed, there are some acorns. I mean, that the thing is that they make sense, at least for some people under some circumstances. I also like the one that's cross languages having functioned in multilingual environments for a while and there are some that are so sensible that you that you really don't mind people using them one for example is interim as in an interim report i-n-t-e-r-i-m right i see quite a few occurrences of interim report as in we need a report at the beginning of the grand phase and then an interim report in the middle of the grand phase and a final report at the end of the phase it makes complete sense, right? Well, I think there's a continuum, isn't there, of the error, where some of them make a lot of sense, uh, regardless of how well we know them, the correct form. Uh, we can still see the sense very clearly of where the mistake is. And sometimes it's just more oddball or more strange thing if you never really would have ever considered it, which I think is why the term acorn itself kind of works pretty well, is is a, the acorn, E-G-G-C-O-R-N, seems like a pretty unique approach to it. And of course, it's not uh, singular to the person who made the error. It's a little more, uh, there's more than one person who who's done that. But um, I think for most people to think of the term E-G-G-C-O-R-N would be pretty far afield from what they would ever think of. Whereas a a phrase like toe the line, for example, where you do toe on a line, T-O-W, on a line. So you could, in a sense, toe a line, although you're not usually towing the line itself. The line is just the means for towing something else if you think about it. But the phrase is toe the line, T-O-E. In other words, step up to the line. It's a a military thing, isn't it, where you have to uh, step up to a line and get your toes on the line, literally. But a lot of us 
don't really think about it that way. And when there's towing and there's lines, the T-O-W spelling seems to make a certain amount of sense. Yes, and um, you think what you're touching upon there is like paradox at the center of the echronologist's task, I guess, which I haven't completely resolved because I think one of the really interesting aspects is that the description that um, Jeff Pullum and the language loggers gave of this singular mind sitting there and thinking about the sense of a word and how it would, you know, reflect in spelling. That's not actually how the most common acorns get transmitted, because as Paul is collecting them, the common ones seem to be transmitted more laterally, like other spellings and language bits are transmitted that you toe the line. You will find it in The Guardian. You will find it in other serious publications spelled T-O-W. And there are a few more that really get into standard spellings where you just you know, they have become accepted by all but those speakers who find this most important to you know, to correct these things. Um, well, on the other hand, we have the social media phenomenon where um, we're, we've entered a period which is unprecedented in human history where uh, more people are writing as a means of communication with uh, broad audiences than ever before. It used to be that the you know you could you had freedom of the press if you owned a press is the old saying. Now you can set up a blog and or a YouTube channel and reach a a huge audience if you have the luck. And the fascinating thing for me is that not only do these odd spellings and usages get spread as people read them because the context is they're not reading that much edited prose they're reading a lot of unedited amateur writing whether it's on twitter or facebook or blogs or whatever but also people who object to certain kinds of usage have free access and are likely Mm -hmm. to comment so you get much more discussion in the old days, I think, linguists thought of themselves as being one little group that didn't have much influence, but dearly wished that they could get their message out to people that uh, language changes and evolves and there are different usage communities and all the different ideas they had. But mostly they were talking to each other. And the prescriptionists, as they get called by the linguists, People who uh, write usage manuals and so on, like me, um, also felt like, well, we have we're talking mainly to ourselves. Um, and of course, I made extraordinary efforts to reach beyond that group with some success. But now I think both of those groups are very small and very marginalized compared to the larger conversation about language that consists of just regular folks writing at, at great length about all kinds of things and getting comments back from their readers so that the social uh, conversation around language has just hugely expanded. Yeah, but I think this is a great thing overall. It has sometimes mm-hmm. weird effects and sometimes it's very anarchic and sometimes people come up with the strangest stuff. But overall, I started out on the internet just before it became extremely widespread. And, and I remember... Um, people warning that it would be terrible because no one would read anymore. They didn't even think that it would become an, a generalized right medium. Um, young people, they don't even use the phone anymore. They just text or write short forms or write. They make videos also a lot, but the videos and attract comments or they are mashed up with text. There's a lot going on. And don't you think, I mean, usage manuals or usage sites have a really high, I think, um, 
they're very popular. They they have a great popularity, and I believe that there are lots of people now that are really out there and trying to get how to do it right. And and then yeah. there are other sides that say, oh, maybe it's not that important how to do it right, but maybe how to understand how it works. And th there is so much going on there. And overall, that's a good thing, I think. One of the things that I often say, people ask me, don't you think that the language is going to hell in a handbasket? Because, um, you know, it, people have been saying forever, young people don't know how to write anymore. <laughs> as, as far back in history, I think I found a uh, quotation from some Mesopotamian writer complaining. <laughs> that, you know, yes. That yes. A, lot of, a lot of the tablets <laughs> they've dug up from ancient or are copies of documents that are full of mistakes. Yes. So people, people, people have been doing this for a long mistakes. time. But and, and smart I think, people, you know, and but I think um, the fact is that because people are writing so much, I think there are more people who are really finding their voices and being able to be uh, effective communicators. It's not like we're all just turning into a bunch of uh, Twitter abbreviating nerds. The percentage, I think, of people who really know how to communicate well is is growing. And even as the readership of novels declines, the number of getting published keeps expanding. In fact, in Japan, there was a, a few years ago, a, a woman who published an entire novel, which was written one Twitter post at a time. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I mean, I'm an educator sometimes, too, and I'm quite aware that sometimes the educator's role to sit down and say, you know, there are different registers and there are different expectations. And if you're addressing something to this or that kind of group of people, well, you have the choice to do that. But if you do want a job in this particular area, you will have to do that. And they expect this kind of formal requirements. And that doesn't mean that your dialect or that your text speak or that your poetry or your rap or whatever it is, is any less worthy. It is just for a different register. And I do not see any indication that the texting kids that um, spell everything in emoji. I have now some six and eight year old friends and their little <laughs> messages. Okay, I did not expect that. There are as many emojis as there are letters. Wow. <laughs> I have to find my way through it and it's quite repetitive, which is good because if there was a whole story in emojis, I wouldn't follow. But there's all these little ornaments that go on their words, which is really funny. So I have no doubt whatsoever that these kids will turn out to be perfectly qualified and adequate and competent writers and speakers and communicators when they grow up and while they grow up. Tom and I have talked in earlier podcasts about a couple of situations in which it really doesn't help to tell people that you shouldn't worry too much about errors. And one of them is when you're interviewing for a job. Yep. If you use a technical term that is very familiar in that particular occupation in an improper way, uh, you're probably going to get just struck right off the list. I have talked to employers who approach me, not because I asked them, uh, who say, when I get a pile of resumes, I've got too many for the job. If I see one, what I consider a grammar mistake, I just set that one aside and I don't even read any further, which I think is horrible. You but know, I, I, when not, I, when I was, no number of linguists arguing yeah. against them is going to change that. That is true, but it's also, you know, which employers get which voice. Um, when I was in the software industry, I, I led a team and we were basically hiring 
always. We always were looking out for people because we were looking for technical people who had at least one other fluent language other than English and had English. And uh, th that's not a really huge candidate pool. I did not, and neither did my boss have a um, spelling error or awkward formulation count against a candidate that otherwise seemed like uh, being competent, interesting, and, and etc. So um, I think it really depends. I well, think and maybe it depends on the specific job, too, because if you're a does. coder, and you're, you tend to hit the wrong typewriter keys all the time. Well, it completely depends on what field yes. you're in, I, I suppose, and what the applicant pool is like. In the very competitive world of job seekers coming out of liberal arts degrees and looking for a job in a law office or something like that to get started, I could well imagine that being a little bit more prevalent thought. Well, let's just weed out those people who um, misspell your and your, you know, they, they put the apostrophe in where it doesn't belong or something and just toss those aside. Yeah, but, you know, as a hiring manager putting this little hat from my past on, um, I think and I know that there are others who think it would um, it would be the wrong way of going about reducing your pool, except for a few very specific jobs. Maybe if you're a copy editor, I think you shouldn't have any, you know, any stupid misspellings. Anything that is spelled non-standard by a copy editor should mm -hmm. have a good reason yeah. for it. <laughs> you know, well, my philosophy is to say, yes, that's true. They shouldn't <laughs> do that, but they're not listening. And so you, yeah. as a job seeker, should yeah. just duck down and say, okay, yes, indeed, you're going to run into some unreasonable, just as you shouldn't show up in your most comfortable clothes for the job interview, yes, your most comfortable I've, language may not be the yeah. thing to use either. But I've also had friends who who know that they're mediocre spellers who may be dyslexic, who are extremely competent in what they do, and I don't want to scare them. Like, you never have a chance in life because your spelling is kind of shaky. It's not true. You have to find the right audience and the right people, and maybe a law office in a conservative environment might not work, you know, whatever, kind of an environment where someone looks like this, and you're always up to the whims of the hiring manager. Some say, you know, some have, like, saying anything that's not in Times New Roman, I toss out, right? The other one we did a whole episode on is something that's been discussed in the New York Times and online a lot, and that's dating sites, in which <laughs> a lot of women in particular will say, if there's a single misuse of English in <laughs> the post, I won't even contact the guy. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> It can give those date seekers and job seekers a chance to uh, exercise a little sour grapes so that if they get passed over for that on that little uh, mistake or a little miscue on their part, um, they can just say to themselves, well, I wouldn't have wanted to go out with you anyway. Yeah, but there is something true to that. I think for myself, now I'm married, so I'm not looking for anybody, but if I'm looking out for someone... Um, I guess it would be a problem in my relationship if someone cast aspersions on me just because I misspell something. Well, it would be a problem, and it's probably not the right person for you. <laughs> right, you know? And, and that's the other thing, and this is something that I wish... I wish that in English-speaking countries, and that's not just the U.S., uh, I wish that students were taught more, you know, real grammar in their schools. The French school system has a lot of downsides, but kids come out of there 
really learning something about the grammar of their language. They have to because you have to know some grammar in order to spell it right in the first place. But they also come out of it with a feeling that, you know, culture is for them. I remember there was a, a story about um, Thierry Henry, the, the French football player who was playing for uh, soccer in the U.S., was playing for a, an English club. And he said, um, interviewed, that he liked Rimbaud, the poet Rimbaud. Uh-huh. But his fans thought he was saying he liked Rambo, so they came to <laughs> Rambo because they did not even think of Rambo. And for, but for a French kid, even with not, I do not know what his scholarity was like, but I do know that he is from an immigrant family and from, or at least, well, let me just backtrack here, at least not from a, you know, a, f- a local French family and grew up not in rich circumstances. Uh, but it's absolutely okay for them to like Rambo. <laughs> I like that. And the problem I see sometimes is there are people who rail against using the passive voice. And I completely agree there may be overuse of the passive voice. I'm in science. We overuse the passive voice all the time. But people are not able to identify the passive voice. You see the uh-huh. list of examples and half of it isn't even in the passive voice. And say, you know, um, an adult with a scholarly job in Germany or France would probably be ridiculed for that. Basically, it's pretty simple structure to identify. There are a lot of college students who can't even identify a noun. Probably, yeah, and that does exist too. But the college students are not right giving usage advice, you know. Oh, but they're receiving it. If the teacher said, um, you've got the wrong pronoun here, they may not know what word is being referred to. You will also find many French and Germans who cannot identify a pronoun, but you will find very few German and French usage advice people who can't identify the passive voice. Chris, when you talk about grammar, are you talking about uh, grammar per se or grammar the way it's used to apply to all the whole basket of usage errors. No, no, I am actually really talking about grammar, the structure, identifying a noun, yeah. um, identifying the different parts of speech and how a sentence is composed and uh, and having the right technical framework for it, even a simplified one. Obviously, they're not teaching a full-blown academic grammar in middle schools in France and Germany either, but they're teaching a reasonably simplified version that um, actually holds up then to be expanded in college study. And I do not think this is the case here, uh, giving the passive voice example again. What happened in this country, I think, is this philosophy of uh, pushing self-expression at the cost of intensive study of the language reached all the way down through the grades. So that starting with the first grade, the emphasis on it, don't worry about, don't discourage them with criticism, don't mark too many things wrong, don't uh, discuss things in the abstract, just let them learn language by reading, by speaking, and eventually it will evolve. And the problem is that nobody anywhere along the line now takes that responsibility saying, okay, now that you're all comfortable, here's some things that might help you be more effective a writer and it goes all the way through college so that there are a lot of composition teachers at the college level especially those with leftist leanings who are just very opposed to any kind of criticism of student writing this is not quite my experience to be entirely honest i think i have some college teacher friend who are have leftist leanings but you know i think it's a sound pedagogic principle to let people not worry too much about errors the thing that I mean, my big criticism from what I have seen of the American uh, lower grade primary and secondary school educational system seems to be a a blatant um, absence of an overarching curriculum that builds on stuff over years. Mm It doesn't have to be the same everywhere, but it needs to be coherent. So if you start with self-expression again and again and again and again, 
and never get to developing deeper formal appreciation. And also, if it is not expected from teachers, if teachers are not held to the standard, they have no incentive of doing this. They would be like a lone voice in the wilderness if they do this, I have the feeling. But this said, the writing instructors that I know at the college level, they definitely are very, they work very hard at this boundary between what is an error and what is a choice of register and how to improve writing. I think there's a lot of very good work actually going on. Yeah, I just run into, personally, as a member of an English <laughs> department, I got tremendous flack from the composition faculty for oh, my dear. work in common errors in English usage. And um, my retirement speech dealt with that at some detail, which is up online on my on my website. Um, but there was, uh, there was a good deal of hostility to the whole concept of usage and uh, a lot of problems in the composition program as a result. I also wanted to mention that this tremendous explosion of interest in usage is reflected in comic strips. And I keep trying to prod linguists who are interested in this phenomenon to look at the comic strips because many cartoonists have begun using their pet peeves about language as jokes and they pop up almost weekly. And there's some of them return to it time and again. And uh, there is a whole website called, uh, well, it's called the Grammar Comic Strips, www thecomicstrips.com subject the hyphen grammar hyphen comic hyphen strips dot php but if you just look for grammar comic strips you'll find it on google and every day when a new one is published they put the cartoon up and a little discussion of it um, with the link and it's just astounding how much of this there is which tells us a, a number of things one is that People are really, really interested in this subject, and, and it's things don't typically make their way into newspaper comics unless they're very widely known. Because uh, whereas web comics can be obscure, newspaper comics can't afford to be. And secondly, they're often self-mocking, in which the character who's making a correction to another character is being made fun of as being overly picky. And then they're often sort of double in that the cartoonist really wants to make the criticism, but also doesn't want to sound like a prig. And so they they make their own character kind of ridiculous in the way that he's being picky. But they're just a, a, a really amazing number of these. Uh, that reminds me, too, of uh, talking about the response of the layered um, treatment of it, where there's the one person making the mistake and the other person correcting the person, and then it's up to the accommodation of the reader, the observer, and the cartoonist to determine who is going to be more highly ridiculed, the person who's making the error or the person who's judging the person making the error. There's a great scene in the TV show Transparent, which airs on Amazon. Uh, in the second season of that show, one of the characters went to see a life coach. And the life coach told her, well, for all intensive purposes, you didn't choose to come here. And the other character says, well, it's not intensive purposes, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and the life coach doubles down and says, no, it is intensive purposes. <laughs> it's not intense and purposes. And, of course, they have a little spat, and then they, the one character walks out. 
uh, it's up to you, the uh, viewer, to try to figure that one out because neither character is sympathetic, really, <laughs> um, and they're both kind of silly. I think everything that makes us more thoughtful about it and communicate more about it and reflect on our own speech and practice and also our own preferences, um, I think is a good thing. And I have been in this situation when people came to me and defended something that is an acorn. I had to kind of say, well, this is not how it really is supposed to be without telling them you are a horrible, you know, this all this goes with it. And I had also the especially intensive purposes. There were a few really spirited defenses of this. There are intensive purposes and then there are extensive purposes. And we're talking about the intensive ones here. And I was like, it makes sense for them now. So maybe, you know, it's become an emblematic era in intensive purposes. It's on the cover of my book, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah of go. course, then it must be, absolutely. <laughs> and it would not have worked in that scene if it were a different one. Um, that one in particular seems to be one that people seem to know or don't know. And if you, maybe partly if you do misunderstand it as intensive purposes, you know, maybe you do become very entrenched in the idea that that is actually the correct form. But... Um, if I'm using it in a non-standard way, I certainly would want people to tell me. Um, one of them that uh, I use incorrectly all the time is one in the same and versus one and the same. And uh, I have done this within the past two years where I've written one in the same. And somebody said, you know, <laughs> uh, you really need to put on your sensor for that one. Yes, and we have a whole category in the Acorn database where in and and is confused, conflated, let's call it conflated, um, and used the wrong way around both directions, I believe. And I am really interested, that's another open questions in Acorn's research, is these structural, these more grammatical Acorns, how do they work? We have a sense of semantics for a word like book or egg or corn, but do we have a sense of semantics for and and in? Yes, we do. But it's, I think, maybe on a different level. And I'm not a formally trained linguist. I would really like to know what people think about that. Could you give us a couple of examples? Of, of... Um, yes, we can do this. Between and and in, we have front and center. We have commander and chief. You know, he's commander <laughs> and chief, you know. <laughs> we have ranking file, which is not quite the same. It's ranking file, like rank and file. Mm -hmm. We have soak and wet. <laughs> we have, well, this is not quite the same. It's human cry instead of hue and cry. Um, we have beacon call. We have in this day and age. Um, we have neck in neck. We have one in the same, yours. Yeah. Oh. Very, very common. We have by and large, part and parcel, tongue and cheek. So you see there is a lot of the A and B or A in B that get understood both ways around. And I couldn't really say it doesn't make sense the other way around. Mm. Well, not always. Soak and wet turns it, I guess, into uh, two verbs, right? To soak and wet, this well, uh, rather than soaking. Yeah, wet. I mean, maybe someone thinks soak could be an adjective. I do not know. Let me give an example for soak and wet. Well, it's often used in an, probably an adverbial form. I guess with him being 130 pounds soak and wet, you would understand. <laughs> yeah, huh. that's odd. That's odd. That person is um, probably just thinking it's this odd idiom. Yeah. It doesn't really make grammatical sense or anything. It's just the way it's used, and it's soak and wet. And they spell something soak and wet with an N, apostrophe N, soak and wet. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a related uh, phrase in meaning that I've run into. 
um, which I'm not sure qualifies as an egg corn, but I think there's a case to be made for it. Self of steam, S-E-L-F of S-T-E-A-M instead of self-esteem. And um, I tried to imagine what a self-esteem would be like. And I was thinking, well, people get all steamed up when they're very uh, angry, say, or full of passion about something. So you could be see yourself as self-inflated if you were under steam pressure or something like that. But that may be a little marginal for egg cornism. I don't know. It might be. I do wonder how many come from latching onto semantics first and how many come to latching onto phonetics first. Uh, there is certainly some sort of interaction there. And I think there is probably a lot more that could be learned from this kind of era. Chris and Paul, I th- everything is great here. Is there anything more that we want to say about acorns and Chris, about your work putting together the acorn database? I mean, I have to say, I wish I had the time to get a little bit deeper into it and get it on a new platform and start the pipeline up again so that we can get up to 1,000 acorns in the database. I think this is quite a realistic goal. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, if someone wants to team up, just come over to our site. I think you will probably be the URL in the show notes. And... I hope so. And oh, yes. Yeah, and then come over to the forums and let's start talking. Maybe we can make a plan to do this without having to take out a year <laughs> of work for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't suppose your department would give you a, a leave of absence I'm, to reorganize it. No, I'm actually, uh, I mean, going back to science, um, I am trying to finish up my PhD. So wow. there's definitely no yeah, chance You don't need whatsoever. any distractions. No, I'm not supposed to have any distractions. Um, I think I should hide this interview from certain people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks a lot for participating. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for joining us and uh, telling us all about your work on the ACORN database and a little bit about your work as a geophysicist. Very fascinating. Well, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to go back and do a little bit more of the hobby linguistics here. And it was great to talk with both of you, Paul especially, and Tom, of course. All right, thank you. Thank you. So long. Bye. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.